Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin, talking to you live from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I've got my uh, cohorts with me today, Jim Marty from Longmont and Rob Hunt, this time uh, from the opposite end of the country out in New York. Uh, we have a very, very special guest on our show today, Maddie Veach, who's got some uh, great experience in both the cannabis and rock and roll industry, uh, has some good stories to tell, and uh, something you don't want to miss. We've got some uh, outstanding cannabis news we're going to lead with, and if we have time at the end, uh, there was a great show that Dead played today back in 1969 in Piedmont Park in Georgia. Uh, that was famous for a lot of reasons, and hopefully we'll have time to talk to you about that one too. But let's dive into what's going on in the marijuana world, I think, really quickly. And uh, starting with Jim Marty. Jim, tell us uh, the story that we were just talking about. Uh, Talk about it with our listeners. Well, there's a Colorado case that tried to get uh, their case heard by the Supreme Court, and although they were turned down, Judge Clarence Thomas writ a petition uh, respecting the denial of the Centuria, all legal terms, but the huge piece of this is that the current marijuana laws are both in and out at the federal level, and that cannot stand. And actually, Justice Thomas, and we think, I suspect Gorsuch helped him with this. <laughs> but I just want to read a couple sentences from this. Once comprehensive, the federal government's current approach is half in and half out, a regime that simultaneously tolerates and forbids local use of marijuana. This contradictory principle creates an unstable state of affairs and strains the basic principles of federalism, which for our listeners who are not schooled in the school of law, federalism means that the federal laws uh, trump state law in very simple terms. goes back to the Whiskey Rebellion in the Washington, uh, Washington's administration. I'll cut to the conclusion because he kind of gives a path here for the future. A prohibition, and uses this very specific word, a prohibition on intrastate, i.e. within a state, use or cultivation of marijuana may no longer be necessary or, prop- or proper to support the federal government's piecemeal approach. So he's kind of pointing it back to the Congress, saying, you know, hey, why don't you just let the states do what they want, which actually there's a bill in Congress called the States Act that does exactly that. And as you've heard me say on this show many times, that's what we want. That gives us our deductions, 2EDE goes away, but it keeps out big pharma, big tobacco, big alcohol, and there's no cross-border trafficking. Within the states, you can do what you want. So this is huge, and it's been all over the press the last few days. This came out just two days ago, the 28th. Well, Jim, what's, what's really, uh, for me as a, as a litigator, what's really impressive about this opinion is you're right he does he lays out a, a, a path forward for people who want to challenge uh, the federal application of law on the state level <clears throat> and uh, you know we've always looked at that and said you know can the feds come in well here's what he's saying there was a, a case previously the race case in which the Supreme Court overwhelmingly held that the federal government had the right to enact laws uh, that made uh, uh, cannabis uh, illegal uh, marijuana illegal and that they could impose those laws even if the states felt otherwise uh, what he's saying now is that the states, uh, the, the federal government has not been enforcing its laws in a consistent fashion. And he's basically referring to the fact that if you're going to allow states to go adult use and ignore federal law, uh, what he's saying is, is that the federal government is undermining its very rationale for the race decision, uh, meaning 
then in the future, uh, the federal government will not be able to rely on that as potentially not be able to rely on that as precedent if somebody brings a law, a, a case challenging some of these laws. He's basically saying that the government may now find itself to be a stop. Estoppel is a legal word meaning that you're barred. Uh, they, that they may be a stop from actually trying to enforce some of these laws. And the fact that it's coming from Thomas, uh, uh, one of the most conservative justices there is, I think is, is both amazing and ironic because I think he's doing it to criticize the federal government's approach. But in criticizing the federal government, he's, he's laying out uh, a game plan uh, for those of us who are always contemplating ways uh, to be able to challenge a federal uh, bar on marijuana. Yeah, let me read from this again because he opens up a huge Pandora's box. So if the government is now content to allow states to act as laboratories and try novel social and economic experiments, then it might no longer have authority to intrude on the state's core police powers, to find criminal law, and to protect the health, safety, and welfare of their citizens. I mean, this is huge. So, so I think what's really interesting there, and anyone that followed the case back in 2005, which is the Gonzales v. Wright case that we're talking about, uh, they used a really obscure ruling at the time when there was very few uh, cannabis laws on the books in any of the states. And what they used was a dormant commerce clause issue uh, that related to a 1930s case that was called Wickard, or Willard v. v. Filburn, which um, everyone learns about in constitutional law because it's what's called the aggregate effect test, which means you know if the aggregate effect of something that happens widespread is enough to affect interstate commerce, then the federal government can actually regulate intrastate commerce. And what they said in this case is in Willard v. Filburn back in the old days, it was a case about whether or not wheat farmers were allowed to, um, to grow wheat for the farm workers that worked on their farms. And what they said is that if every farmer out there that was supporting a bunch of farm workers was growing wheat and uh, using that wheat to feed their farm workers, then it might not be a big deal farm by farm, but the aggregate effect across the country would be harmful and detrimental to the wheat industry as a whole. So they created this, this um, uh, test that they would use as an aggregate effect anytime they thought about interstate or dormant commerce clause issues. So in 2005, they pulled this thing out that hadn't been thought of in years and said, okay, well, California's intrastate commerce of cannabis with uh, a medical law, if we actually allow that to happen, then that's going to affect what happens in interstate commerce. And we've already made a determination as a federal government that cannabis is illegal at the federal level. So we can't allow for uh, California to go a separate way, uh, knowing that the intrastate commerce is going to affect the interstate commerce. So that is largely what's prevented us from 2005 until today from being able to move cannabis across state lines, even with contiguous states that have legal um, uh, programs. So you can't go from California to Oregon to Washington. You can't go from you know, Massachusetts to Maine to New Hampshire. That's why we can't move cannabis across state lines. But at the time, it, it made a little bit of sense because there's very few states that had any sort of cannabis laws in the books at all. And Thomas, when he ruled on it back in 2005, supported that decision saying, you know, this is where we are. What he's saying now is, We've come so far since then, there's now 36 states that have medicinal uh, programs on the books. There's north of 14 states with adult use. If we're not going to enforce these laws, then the rationale that we relied on in Gonzales v. Reich in 2005 is no longer applicable in 2021. Good explanation, Rob. Thank you. That's uh, spot on and makes it very uh, understandable. We might actually see some movement here at the federal level, because uh, as far as I can see, nothing's happening in Congress right now. Yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath on that. I think we're still not, we're not going to see anything at the federal level, but I do think it's nice when you see a very conservative justice saying if this question were to come in front of us again, likely we'd uh, rule differently. 
So it should give yes. you know a fair amount of uh, confidence to people that think, okay, if we do want to put this forward, do we at least have the uh, the support of the more conservative side of the court? And the answer is that you know if if you think that Thomas might be the most conservative, if not you know top two most conservative, it's a um, a very good harbinger of how the court would rule and what he's sending as a signal to the lower courts before it even gets to his desk. Okay, so that. Uh that was uh, one exciting bit of news. Jim, another thing that just happens to involve Colorado, we saw an article about, is that it looks like Colorado's going to start putting caps on uh, the amount of extracts that medical patients can purchase. Are, are you familiar with this new rule? Yeah, I am, and uh, happy to say that uh, we had a bit of, you know, the group that I'm a part of, Colorado Leads, is a uh, Colorado lobbying group that uh, my company, Bridge West, supports. And it's actually, a, it's a... Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, but a little bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing, it's, it's, a, it's actually a victory because it started out as a potency cap uh, for all cannabis. And what the really issue was of the uh, prohibitionists, as I call them affectionately, is they were concerned about high concentrates going to teenagers, a practice called looping, where a cannabis patient, teenager, uh, would buy his maximum and then sell it to his friends. So that's where the potency argument came from. And we were able to redirect that and say, hey, listen, we don't need a potency cap for, for adult use and for adults, but we understand your concern about looping. So let's put some limits on what, because you can be 10 years old and be a medical patient in Colorado with your parents' permission. Yeah, but, but, but those kids aren't looping, man. Those kids, if they get their parents' permission, those kids are, are getting their medicine under parents' parental supervision. They're only getting what they need. This is much more geared towards, you know, the fact that uh, there was no delineation between really, really strong concentrates and, uh, and less strong products, and guys were able to purchase a ton of product that was way more than anyone needed for personal use. So, yeah, I think, you know, let, let's... Let's call this what it is, which is trying to cure the dab heads from having just way too much access to, um, to you know, massive amounts of concentrate. And if you're doing that, then I don't think there's anyone on this, uh, on this podcast that doesn't support the idea of, like, you don't need to buy an ounce of concentrate or an ounce of wax or shattered butter or any of that stuff at a time. It makes a lot more sense to say, hey, let's, you know, reduce the amount of concentrate you can get in favor of saying, okay, you can have an ounce of weed, but you can't have, you know, an ounce of concentrate. Those are, you know, that, that's like... That's like saying go out and buy cases of Everclear. You know, no, nobody needs it. Correct. And so we look at this as a victory. We were able to redirect the potency cap to uh, something we all can agree on. It's that, you know, teenagers should not be getting their hands on, on medical marijuana or concentrates. No, I, I agree with that. And I think, Rob, you make a good point. My only concern is that once the government starts creeping in and putting limits on things, then the only question is, you know, have we opened a door and how far can they go with it? And can they, you know, eventually accomplish from within what they weren't able to accomplish from on the outside? And you know, maybe I'm a little paranoid when I say that, but after, you know, 50 years of, you know, playing this game, I can't quite get rid of that feeling. No, I think you're spot on, Larry, but, you know, my answer to that is the same one I always have, which is if we legalized everything, then we wouldn't have those same issues because there'd be no need for looping because people would actually have access. So when you've got, you know, situations where people can't gain access through a, an easy source legally uh, in their area, then it causes them to, you know, look to the illicit market or to divert from the legal market to the illicit market, whether it means product, you know, being produced in California or Colorado and shifting over to Nebraska and Kansas, or whether it means, you know, diverting to, uh, to younger, you know, younger people in the population. Either way, I think we're, we're supporters of, of putting in sensible regulations to prevent that from happening. And the best way to do it is to, you know, to have better access to the public 
and to make sure that, you know everyone knows there's penalties to diverting to children. You know, and I think that the same thing has happened for alcohol for years. Like no one tells me how many cases of beer I can buy, but I certainly know that I can't give it to my neighbor's kid. So right. you know, we we just have to be careful about that and make sure that um, we explain to the government this isn't about you know. Um, expanding or, or being okay with, you know, controlling the, uh, the amount, it's much more about putting in sensible policies that we can all adhere to. And if you do, then uh, there shouldn't be any issues or any more than there are with any other substance. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to say something else? Well, I was going to say, it's a great transition because if anyone knows, yes. you know, about a bunch of dab heads, it's Matty Veach, you know? So, uh, <laughs> you know, we got to get him involved in this conversation because uh, I, I can tell you that he hangs out with kids in the parking lot all the time and just, you know, make sure that they're all having a good time at the shows that he works at. So, you know, I think he's probably seen plenty of kids that probably have done one or two uh, too many um, uh, hot plates or, you know, <laughs> uh, quartz nails or whatever, you know, whatever people are dabbing off these days. But, Maddie, how you doing, brother? It's great to see you and welcome to the, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate you guys having me. Well, the whole dab thing is, it is funny because, to me, it is completely a different world. I mean, when, when it all – I can remember – I would say 2012, around maybe 11. We, it was New Year's Eve at, at uh, First Bank Center, and we were working string cheese New Year's, and the photographers were using my office as a storage spot, and they had a dab rig, you know, the size of what looked like a hookah to me, but I just didn't, you know, with the whole, you know, with the heat gun and the whole thing, I, it kind of threw me off. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> I was just like, what are you all doing? Obviously, it's pretty more mainstream these days, but um, I mean, after my my little bit with dabs, I, I instantly went back to flour because I couldn't deal. It was just too much. You couldn't. I couldn't work. I couldn't. You wouldn't be able to understand me. That's for sure. <laughs> ask Ask Rob. Uh, Gabagool. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, you know, I think I think the cap on um on this is probably a good thing like you said i mean no one needs an ounce of of shatter or or butter whatever you want to call it these days um i noticed from being down here the last seven months in florida that they were trying to do that to flour i'm not don't quote me on this but i want to say the percentage was they wanted to cap it at 10 percent, and the the people here laughed at it because you know what most most Marijuana now is what fifteen to almost thirty. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're going for potency, anything that's on the top shelf is normally you know twenty two to thirty percent. Right. Uh, and if you're going to start pushing people on ten percent, all you're doing is pushing everyone back into the arms of the illicit market. It makes yeah. absolutely no. I mean, like if you think about where Florida was for years with the Florida crypto and you know all the original like OGs that were coming out of that area, uh, you know their their indoor cultivation. Um, uh, tradition was pretty massive down there, and there's no way you're going to put you know the Florida kids back into 10 percent weed. Well, and and just the strains themselves that people the growers trade among themselves are not even near that. You know, they're all everyone's trading the same strains, so or or, or making new ones that are trying to be even or more potent. They're not going to go down. But I, I'm pretty pretty 100 percent sure they squashed it anyway. They thought it was a joke. And I want to qualify my statement that when I say Florida kids, I'm talking about Florida kids over the age of 21, but, yes. but still in my mind, kids. You know, it's, right. uh, Good clarification, the, the, lawyer. Yeah, the guys that are out there uh, that, that were growing weed for a long time in Florida. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of the drivers outside of California and outside British Columbia. I always think of Florida as being one of the great growing traditions for a long time in the, in the 90s. And like the Florida crypto was legendary. 
and uh, there's no way you're you're pushing the guys that you know grew up with that as kind of their background back into uh, the ten percent cannabis. I wonder if the if the nickname crypto is still alive. We just, we just brought it back, man. I'm bringing Crippy back. <laughs> the Crippy. But definitely were quite a few of them out on the Grateful Dead lots back in the early or late 80s, early 90s. So, Maddie, you just brought up uh, New Year's at, um, at you know, First Bank with Cheese. If I remember, I think a year before that, you and I were at um, uh, the Pepsi Center seeing Panic for New Year's back you know, before you were working shows. What was the transition like from you going from, you know, I kind of talked about you and our, our history together and our friendship of, you know, you and I seeing tons of shows together and you kind of just being the person in the Boulder scene that literally knew every band, every manager, everyone else, never worked for a show, but just had access to everything just kind of because you're the Veach, right? So, you know, h- how did it go that you went from being the Veach to, uh, to all of a sudden getting, you know, these jobs and gigs where you're running the production for the stage at the Fox Theater? Uh, ultimately, you know, becoming the, uh, the the stage manager for String Cheese and now being the production and tour manager kind of for uh, Anders Osborne. I mean, it's been an amazing, you know, 15 years watching you transition, and uh, I'd love to kind of hear how that uh, developed and, you know, how it went from being a, a fan that, you know, got to hang out and party all the time to having to, you know, be in those same venues but, you know, wearing a laminate and having to be on, on radio. Well, I'll tell you, it all started because of legalization and the medical progression in Colorado. Um, you know, I, I saw it coming. I definitely had friends that moved from Colorado to California. Um, they were, you know, everyone was complaining of price lower, you know, prices being lowered. Um, demand was up, but supply was way up. Um, so everyone was kind of struggling to find their niche in the growing market and I just saw it as a um, opportunity for myself to just kind of get out of out of the rogue world and and jump back into the um, working force and we had a a we have a mutual friend Scott Nichols who at the time was my neighbor and I literally went over there and said put me in coach like I, I don't care where what you know, I'll do anything. And I really did for probably the first three or four years of my career. I, I did anything. I was a stagehand. I was a runner. I was, a, you know, basically the lowest echelon and, and just worked my way up. And, and because of my, you know, where it is true is who you know in this world. I mean, it, it definitely helped. And I had a lot of connections with the Colorado music scene, um, which at the time, the company I was working for that was um, production managing string cheese was Scott Nichols' company, All Phases. And that's kind of where I got my foot in the door. I mean, I literally went from sweeping the, the, the garage at the old string cheese warehouse to production manager which in 10 years, which was pretty cool to me. <laughs> and I mean... A lot of a lot of stuff. Obviously, before it, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, lots of you know, sixteen, eighteen hour festival days, um, doing shitty jobs. You know, stagehand work is not glorified by any means. It might look it when you're from a friend who sees you standing on the stage watching the show, but they don't realize that you were there for twelve hours since seven in the morning. And then the show starts at seven and they just got there five minutes ago. I mean, it's brutal. And 
then you got to be there for another three to two to four hours after the show to clean up to load out depending on what band's there i mean you know these days would turn into 20 even up to 20 24 hours and and just be whooped um then slowly as other um people kind of moved on in the in the music industry i i was a backline tech for a summer tour string cheese i did bass and both drum kits then the year after that i got hired on as full-time as stage manager and then about three years after that our production manager got up and moved on to a different career and i jumped in as production manager so it was kind of an absorption job i wasn't really promoted in any way i kind of absorbed the job but it was still a promotion obviously to me um and then i kind of um you know, string cheese just became a bit too much, and we parted ways in 2019. And now I'm with Anders, who has helped me tremendously because I've been, as Rob knows, I've recently become 100% sober, and he's Anders is 12 years sober. So being with him has just been awesome, and just there's no there's no um, enabling going on on that tour. And, and I and I run it, so I, there's no. I, I it's a dry backstage. It's all that, and compared to string cheese, it's a string cheese was always a party backstage. I mean, they went from kind of their hippie roots in Colorado, Boulder, Telluride, Durango, and just had so many friends. And those friends are still fans today. And the guest list was always huge, and and I guess it just kind of wasn't. They couldn't say no because they this this fan base built built this band into what they are today so you know and i get it the pandemic's gonna change all of that I, I don't know uh jim if you noticed that there was not many people backstage at widespread panic i did notice that but um and out, out front it was shoulder to shoulder oh yeah obviously obviously but i, I think the the day of all the passes being handed out and be, being a party backstage are over for the time being at least which is going to make it easier for for band and crew to to, to work yeah yeah there was a photographer uh, back behind uh the drum kit um taking some pictures a lot of video um you know from different angles a really good video of JoJo's hands playing the piano, uh, close-ups of David Schools, and uh, so now you're bringing me into the shows uh, from last weekend, which kind of intermingled this conversation. But you know, when you haven't seen somebody for over a year, you really notice that they've changed and aged a little bit. Uh, David Schools' long hair is is going gray, and uh, John Bell looked like shit, but. Uh, Big bags under his eyes. Looked like even though he was staying at the Ritz Carlton, he wasn't getting a lot of sleep. But yeah, they played really, really well. And God, the, even though it was a cold rain, man, talk about cold rain. Uh, 50 degrees, and uh, it rained hard. I felt really bad for Panic and the fans because this was their first multi-night gig in a in a year, and uh, it rained at showtime three days in a row. It rained in the afternoon while we're sitting on the steps. So it really put a damper on things. And I'm talking about waterfalls coming down the steps of Red Rocks. You've seen that before, I think, Maddie. Yeah, many times, many times. And I think, Rob, you, did you come to um, Red Rocks String Cheese in the last probably five years? I, don't, I can't remember if you did. Sorry, my brain's a little frazzled. Not in the last couple, no. I haven't been back in Colorado that much. We had, you know, many 
we had to stop the show. We, you know, we never had to cancel, thankfully, but there was just tons of times, you know, always tarps, you know, the stagehands were squeegeeing water off the stage. You know, luckily it's a rock, um, it's a cement platform, so it's not your normal stage, but when gear gets wet, it's no fun for anybody, um, especially the musicians. And, and most of these bands use car use carpet to put you know because it absorbs sound um to put their pedal boards on put their microphone stands all that so as soon as that gets wet it's just a disaster and um jim the all that video you saw was uh that company the company nugs nugs i'm giving them a plug i guess nugs.net um where they they you can pay i think 20 25 dollars to stream the show from home because we would use them on tour, we'd use Nugs, we'd use other carriers um, to do the video. So people that can't come to the show, which is, I mean, how awesome would that been if we could have watched Grateful Dead shows from home? Right. <laughs> yeah, where, where was Brad Sterling when we needed him? Yeah, yeah, right. Guy came, guy came too late for us, but uh, but he's completely and totally changed the whole idea of couch tour and how we think about music um, for the jam band scene. And uh, I actually listened to some of it um, all three nights, actually. And the the audio stream was so freaking good. I, I was very surprised how awesome it was um, through the computer. Yeah, this year shows at Red Rocks, the, the sound has been phenomenal. Uh, they built a new roof. Uh, the old roof was from 1988, and it was at the end of its life cycle. So last year... While they were shut down for COVID, they put an incredible state-of-the-art roof with built-in speakers. And the sound at Red Rocks is phenomenal. And I, I'm not surprised to hear it coming through their, their audio uh, couch tour uh, just as good. Well, and I believe that the, the audio is provided by another plug, this local company that we would use all the time, Brown Note. Shout out to Ryan Knudsen. Yeah, Ryan Knudsen, man. He's awesome, and his wife, Sarah, and they would provide audio and lighting for many, many bands that come through Colorado as well as, well as over the country. But I believe they hung that audio. Um, I haven't been back to Red Rocks this year, so I don't. I would imagine it's either a DMB K1 rig or K2 rig combined, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, but I, I'd imagine it's going to just sit there or hang there all summer so no one has to load in and out audio unless they want something different. But... So that's pretty that's pretty awesome. That takes about two to three hours out of the day of loading in for bands. Yes. I've been to um, four shows so far at Red Rocks, and it's the same speaker set up every time for Spearhead, Bob Weir, and now Panic. Yeah, I think it, it does just stay there. Um, great sound system, just wonderful. Hey, Maddie, I've got a question for you. Go ahead. Um, I was a uh, journalism major as an undergrad, and uh, wound up writing sports for the Michigan Daily, which, you know, you know, like you were saying, it always seemed like a lot of fun. You know, the guys sit in the press box, they get to go talk to the players after the game, get down on the field. And it was a very great experience from a journalistic perspective. And as a fan, it was kind of nice. But what I really found was, you know, it, it like you were saying, it really turned it into work. And it wasn't as much fun. You couldn't have fun at a game like all your buddies down in the stands screaming and yelling and caring. You can't cheer in the press box. You can't, you know, you're there to perform a job and you're supposed to behave and you game is over, everybody else is going out to drink beers and you've got to write a story and deal with everything. And after a while, I'll tell you, it, it, you know, when my senior year, Michigan was playing Ohio State at home for my final game and I opted out of covering the game 
so I could go sit in the stands with my buddies and really, you know, have one last game of really whooping it up and having a good time. As a, as a guy who's a huge music fan, and that clearly comes through, did you find that, you know, once you kind of crossed over onto the other side and, and started working on the crew and everything, did it change the musical experience for you? Absolutely. Um, but for me, I loved it. I mean, I, it, it gave me a, a sense of purpose. It gave me this new found career, and, and I really did love it. But if you're a music fan where you only want to be there and, and to cheer and party and drink beers, that is not the career for you. You know, I mean, like it, it kind of it, it changed me and it helped me kind of grow as a person. It absolutely grow as a person. So I absolutely loved it because. You know, you, you, you form a family on the road with the crew and the band and your family out there and, and everyone relies on each other to, to do different jobs to get that show. I mean, you know, I would always compare it to, to, to other jobs where you could go into work, do your job, but not necessarily, it didn't matter, you know, unless, I guess I'll, I'll compare it to you where you were a writer, you had a time you had a you you had a a time crunch to get that story in, right? We had to be ready by three o'clock sound check, or there would be you know, or people are going to be very angry. And obviously, you'd be ready by six o'clock doors. Sure, we had to push doors back a few minutes here and there, but only you know, but you know, because of the whole, it's 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 a team effort. There's no individual in the music world. I mean, yeah, at the at the end of the night when widespread panic hits the stage and all the girls are yelling for John JB. Yeah, that's a different story, but most people don't see. And I mean, Rob and I friends, a lot of people know about the inner workings of the music industries. I don't, I can't vouch for everyone saying that because I think a lot of people are completely oblivious to it. I mean, they obviously, you know, sure. know, know that, that something's happening, but you right. know, it, it, some people I think are just completely just have no clue and they might not want to have a clue, which is fine because right. they want to just have fun. <laughs> well, that was my feeling. I never wanted to meet the athletes necessarily. Cause I'm like, these guys are the guys I cheer for. What if they turn out to be jerks? I, you know, right. I'm just as happy, but I mean, that's once the show starts, do you have a few minutes where you can just stop and, and really watch and listen for a little while? Do you ever have that well, freedom to do that? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh we would wear the um, the backline crew and the stage manager would we had our own in-ear packs because um, nowadays everyone uses in-ear monitors so we would have our own special um, audio pleasure of the show i could oh literally go down to my office and still listen to the show while it was going on and um as well you know the grateful dead kind of started this back when where they have their own in between microphones to band members, they can talk to each other. Same thing. Pretty sure Panic has the same thing. String G's, Fish. Uh, actually, Fish does not use in-ears. Maybe Paige does. But, uh, you know, so when there's changes in the music, when they're going to abort a song, when they're going to, let's go into this jam, and they'll yell out some uh, a chord cadence. You know, all that stuff's going on, and, you know, no one has any idea in the fan base, but I do, though it's kind of cool. It's definitely a different interpretation of the show. You obviously know if shit goes wrong um, and if shit goes right. I mean, they'll, they'll cheer each other on. 
or they'll they'll get on each other for something. You know, you missed a court or you're totally out of you're you're in the wrong court, you know. I mean, all kinds of stuff can happen where an uh, interpretation for someone else will be like, that was the best version of blah 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 ever. And I'm like, no, that was the worst version ever. So Maddie, you're t- you're telling me that you can hear the whole thing through your earpiece, which means you can take your hula hoop anywhere you want into the audience and anywhere. start hula hooping and still <laughs> <Anywhere>. <laughs> and still just like be rocking out waiting for the chord change and when when all the girls are like, Oh, this is great, you'd be like, just wait thirty seconds, Kang said he's gonna do. Yeah. And uh, and like you know, you know exactly when to light up the glow sticks on your hula hoop. Yep, exactly. I got a I got a I got a button for that. Can I rent a pair of those earphones once? I'd like to just listen in for a little while. Yeah, I mean I, that's not a bad idea. One of the things you were saying I think is really interesting because you and I both you know kind of got jumped into the music scene based on just who our friends were and in, uh, in music, and both of us kind of got pulled into it through uh, through friends that were already there that you had a much better time with the transition. I could never stop and turn off the partying. I just wanted, you know, to keep it going. And ultimately, that's probably why it didn't work out that well as a long-term career for me. But I found it exceptionally annoying that people that didn't understand, like, all that went into what I was doing would see me at a show and be like, dude, what's up? Let's rage. And you're like, I'm working, man. I've got a radio on. Like, dude, you understand what it is I'm trying to, you know, get done so you can have a good time here. Do you find it hyper annoying, or did you, as you were making that transition where everyone that kind of knew you as, like, someone they were used to partying with in the audience, that now we're going, like, like, yeah, let's hang, dude, or get me up on stage, or do this, and you're like, go away, I've got, I got a job to do. I got really, really good at blocking those people out. Um, I was really good at ignoring people. The biggest annoying thing that would happen was, one, someone would grab my microphone off my shoulder and yell into it. Most of the time, they wouldn't press the button, so it wouldn't do anything. <laughs> so, But that was super annoying. The second one was most cases in rock and roll, especially the very important ones, will say, no drinks or do not put your drink on this case. Who puts their drink on the case? Every single person that's backstage. Because they don't give a shit. And they, don't, they look at it as a table or their drink resting spot. And so, I mean, many shows, it's like, I would just take my arm and freaking throw them all off and onto the floor because it would just be so annoying. Cause Dude, just... you used to be cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I get it. People get wasted and their brains just shut off to what's respect and what they should be doing. Now, I'm not saying this is everyone. People that have been back there for years obviously are super respectful and a lot of people would say, dude, I get it. You got to work. But, you know, how many times, hey, smoke this bowl, do this, do ask to do this, that, or the other thing. And I just like, come on, man. Like, no. <laughs> like, I don't come into your office and ask you to do blow <laughs> with you. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> but, um, you know, it comes with the territory. And any, any roadie, any person in the industry is, has run into that, I'm sure, in their lifetime. I mean, even with Anders, I dealt with it. We did the uh, Christmas shows at Tipitina's, and that was 2019 at the end. And, um, I mean, Anders is a known sober person. And some people came into the green room, and some woman just was like, whipped something. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, absolutely not. What? This is wrong? Like, she thought, "What what am I doing? Why am I being a dick? That I'm yelling at this woman for taking out drugs in a 12-year recovering addict's green room. You know? I mean, 
people don't don't get it. But I think you I think you just brought up a great idea. Like at that Seinfeld where they said, "Let's go down and heckle people at their offices." <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we should do this. I think we should actually show up with a big bag of blow and just roll into someone's office and just start cutting rails yeah. on their boss's desk yeah. and just be like, "Yeah, what? what's up, man? We're hanging." Yeah. You know? What this is cool? Just like the, this isn't cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> totally turn the tables. Just find out where that chick works and be like, all right, we'll see you on Monday. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, just your luck. Her boss will be like, I'm in. Yeah, right. Probably. Well, it depends. I mean. <laughs> Dude, I, are you the Veach? Can you get me tickets for next week? <laughs> well, that that another thing about what Rob just said is I would I would change phone numbers to funny names that had to do with ticket hoarders or ticket askers. And... And uh, punchy clown nose, <laughs> punchy clown nose, dickhead ticket list, you know, stuff like that. Because when a year would pass, it would be maybe Red Rocks, it'd be New Year's, Electric Forest, all the big shows. They'd be like, Hey, Maddie, what's up, dude? How are you, man? You know, like, can I get a ticket? And the last text was them was from a year ago for the exact same thing. And I'd be like, I just block or ignore. I wouldn't block them because I love. I like reading them. It's kind of funny, <laughs> and uh, you know they would. They you know obviously might be a friend or acquaintance or someone that just met me, and you know you learn who to ask and who not to. Nowadays, it's don't ask anything. I think a few of the Panic crew members were wearing shirts that said no backstage passes. That's when I call Lopez and shake him down for one just on principle. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely did see um, no one backstage. Obviously, everyone's paying for tickets. I mean, yeah, these guys, everyone um, was struggling for a year plus. No income, basically. Taking out loans. They got to pay. A lot of bands took out loans to pay their crew to keep them employed. Um, so they didn't have to go on unemployment. They didn't have to go become a truck driver or, or a, a Amazon delivery guy just to pay the bills. I mean, that's why I always tell all my friends like never ask for a, a free ticket until the show is sold out. When the show is sold out, then maybe you know. But until then, buy a ticket, support the artist. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because they they think it the opposite way. Like, oh, the ticket, the show's sold out. There's no tickets. That's when I'm more likely, if I like you, <laughs> to get you in if you're stuck outside. But if there's, you know, a thousand tickets at the door, fuck that. Go, you got money. And, and I swear, it's, it's, the, it's a Murphy's Law. It's like the richer they are, the more people, the, the richer they are, the more they ask for free stuff. Where the poor guys will go, poor women, men will go scrape up change from their car to go buy a ticket. Totally. They're out in the parking lot asking for spare spills. You know, working like, <laughs> Sammy Smith big boys just to get in that show. Whereas the, uh, you know, everyone else is asking. Yeah, right. I mean, they're rolling yeah, around. That's the, uh, that's the great irony of this whole thing is that those that can afford to do it often don't because they think they've paid their dues or they think they've, you know, whatever. But, uh, but my reaction is always like, you know, just support the artist whenever you can. If you, if you can't, you know, don't, don't be asking people for, uh, for favors because eventually you are just that guy. But having said that, now you've been on our podcast, we all expect free tickets forever because, you know, we kind of, <laughs> we kind of broed you out on this one. So, uh, you know, whatever tours you're doing, um, you know, like, yeah. it's kind of the quid pro quo that we just, you know, kind of make sure everyone understands before they come on the show. All right. Gotcha. So good story from Sunday's show. Um, you know, I think they need to redo those uh, T-shirts that say never miss a Sunday show. 
should say never miss a Sunday show unless it's 50 degrees and raining. Yeah, right. Did, did they play a chilly water gym? Oh, my God. Was, but anyway, um, so went up there Sunday afternoon, sold out show, <clears throat> didn't have tickets with my son, Jack, who's 23. And, you know, the tickets on StubHub were 200 bucks or more, plus the fees. Now nah, we're not going to pay 200 So we sat down by the box office all afternoon with a bunch of other people looking for tickets. And sure enough, a couple hours before the show, these two very beautiful women from Vail, Colorado, they turned out they were, come up, hey, I got two tickets. There was like 12 guys that have been waiting all afternoon for tickets. And I said, well, how many you got? She goes, I got two. And I just turned to the other guys. I said, hey, guys, I got two here. Do you mind if I roll with these ladies? No, go ahead, man, go for it. She goes, one condition is you have to go in with this. I mean, there's no more going through the parking lot looking for tickets because it's all on people's phones. So she goes, yeah, we'll sell you the tickets for face value, but you have to come in with us. <clears throat> I said, sure, let's go. Hop in my Suburban. I drove him up to the show and totally sold out show. We get in for face value. So our record stands intact. Um, my sons and I have gone to many, many shows and sporting events without tickets, and we always get in. Okay. But back to the work and it shows, I really enjoyed my time as a, a photojournalist for the Times Call here in Longmont. You know, you go to so many shows, and I've literally been to Red Rocks hundreds of times, you know, and it just felt good to be, you know, part of the, the working establishment behind the scenes there. You know, you're down in the pit for the first three songs, taking pictures, and you go home and write your review. Um, I enjoyed it very much. Um, it is fun to be part of the, uh, the infrastructure, if, as you, if you will. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a completely different perspective when you're actually working on a show than it is when you're uh, when you're watching it. And I think that the first couple of times you actually go on radio and start um, and, and start, you know, really trying to uh, be part of what you're putting on as the production, completely changes your your thought process around what it is. And you never look at a show the same way again. Like when I go to see Cirque du Soleil now in Vegas, I don't look at it and watch the acrobats. I look at it and watch the production team and go, how are these guys changing stages so fast? Like how, how, you know, what, what kind of lighting do they have in there? And like, you know, oh, those are studio spots and those are this. It's just a completely different way of looking at it. And I'm sure now with you, Matt, when you look at production, you know exactly what kind of PA they're flying. You know exactly what, um, what lighting they're flying. It's, uh, it's a completely different eye that you have for the, uh, the event. Well, yeah, I mean, we would literally, especially Red Rock shows and the bigger New Year's shows, um, uh, Electric Force. I mean, we would spend six to nine months on the preparation for lighting video just you know first finding vendors then you know pricing fixtures and then the lighting designer um creating the plot for the show and uh, i think jim mentioned the new roof at red rocks it's huge i mean it's huge for touring bands because now um you can hang lights and video much easier than you could before um, where there was you know there's weight limits on the roof there's there's point limits where you know you get a you get a tech pack from a venue the the designer is going to be limited to what he can do by what is there obviously with all these new venues and new structures going up they're making it much easier um the mission ballroom for one don strasberg and and many other people created that to incorporate um, shows from 2,000 to, I think, almost 4,000 to where the stage moves and all the points where the PA hangs and all the lighting can hang at different spots so they can make an intimate show for 2,000 or the max capacity at, I think, 
35 to 4,000. So where Don would say that there no show will ever not be sold out at the Mission Ballroom, which is pretty cool. The listeners, is if you go to the Red Rocks website, you can see pictures of the new roof and, and read about its history and why it was, was replaced. I just looking at it right now. <laughs> it's very cool. It looks great. And before that, there was, there was I, I'm not sure I was not there, but um, the Grateful Dead in 87, was there even a roof there? No, I saw the Grateful Dead there in 84, and the second night they had a horrible, horrible rain and hailstorm uh, that knocked out the back window of our car. We got to the show late, and it just was pouring all the We had the waterfall going down the steps, and it was, it was nasty. They they played. I couldn't believe that they were up there playing, but they did. Yes, it was a, a silver tarp roof. I have a picture of it in my barn. Well, yeah, and I've been... I've dealt with that the old roof many times, and um, I mean, still it was it was good. It, it served its purpose. We did a lot. We did a lot of cool stuff there. Um, but now I'm I haven't seen the tech pack for the new roof, but I imagine it, it's obviously state of the art. Um, as Jim said, that the the PA the speaker system is is in place for the whole summer. I'm sure they'll take it out for the winter, um, but and just to to tech it up. I'm not sure who. Who actually, I, I would imagine AEG provided that, the audio for that, since they're mostly booking all the shows there. Yeah, if you look at the um, Red Rocks website, there's literally a show every night. Yeah, oh, I've, I've, I've been seeing it. I mean, there's been Leftover Salmon, Umphreys McGee, all kinds of bands already. And that's almost all Don Strasberg. Donnie's pretty much, you know, through AEG, is just straight running that place these days, along with, you know, multiple other venues in, uh, in the market. Um, outside of just the new roof we were talking about before uh, we got on, you know, the, uh, the podcast, but, you know, there's a lot of other really cool parts of Red Rocks. That I think people that haven't actually worked at that event or worked at that venue don't know about starting from, you know, kind of how you load in, uh, coming up from, you know, the, uh, the trading post lot to, you know, the, um, the offices that are upstairs, you know, on either wing of the stage and, you know, kind of the backstage, I have to go up the scaffolding to get into the backstage area, which is totally different than any other venue. But to me, one of the most amazing parts of Red Rocks, and I know you've had a lot of experience going back and forth through it, is the tunnel that goes down from where catering is up to the soundboard, um, which I think is in, what, the 15th row or 16th row of the center. Um, and kind of like all the history and all the other stuff that goes along with that tunnel, that when you go through there, if you've been, you know, enough times through that tunnel, you get to sign your name into it. Um, you know, anyone can do it that's, that's in there. But, you know, I, I know I've got my name in there, and Jim Marty says he signed his name in there, and I'm sure yours is in there somewhere as well, Maddie, as, long, as well as tons of our friends. But, you know, can you give any uh, anecdotes of kind of, like, why you love Red Rocks as a venue, why it's a fun venue to work? I mean, number one reason is just just how cool it is and how, you know, this natural amphitheater built into the rocks. It's not, you know, most venues, when you're on tour, um, I'll speak for theaters and arenas, you walk into those things in the morning and all you see is walls and kind of the same look everywhere you go. Um, you know, you might be in some beautiful theater, but you're not seeing the sunshine. You're not, you know, they all kind of, kind of melt, they kind of melt into the same thing once you do it enough times. And, um, it, it, it can just get on you, on your psyche. Um, it could be beautiful, you know, you, you'll go outside and maybe talk to a friend that's coming to the show and they're just like, oh, it's a beautiful day. And you're like, I, I would know. I had no idea. But Red Rocks, you know, you get there at seven in the morning. I've said this a few times. Um, I'm sure people know about this, that there's always yoga in the morning. Actually, there's just people exercising at Red Rocks. 
and I would always say about, you know, we'd stand there on stage looking up at them, they'd be looking down at us, and we, we're saying they're crazy, and they're looking down at us saying we're crazy, <laughs> because, and, and uh, so they're there till about one or two o'clock until the park kicks them out, so they can get ready for the show, but I mean, we've been there on a Saturday, I want to say there's a thousand plus people out uh, in the rocks, you know, um, enjoying the day, because it's just such a gorgeous spot. And it's free, you know. It's it's a state park, it's all, or it's a city park, I guess. Poor, it's a actually it's a, a city and county of Denver park. So you know, anyone that doesn't know that, if you're visiting Colorado and it's a daytime, even if there is a show uh, before I want to say let's go one o'clock, you can get in there and check it out in the fall and in the winter when there's nothing going on, you can run up, you can jump on the stage. Um, I actually did that with some family um, last about two years ago, and they'd never been there. And you know, they're not going to come to a rock and roll show, but got to experience how beautiful it is just by walking in. And you can come in that upper lot where you don't have to walk, you know, up the treacherous stairs, as we all know how brutal they can be. Yes, it, I always tell people going to a show at Red Rocks was a physical experience because you're going to be climbing a lot of stairs. Your heart's going to be pounding. pounding. And another another cool thing is that the musicians I've worked with who play there, they that that venue means more to them than a lot of other places. You know, when you're on tour, like I said, every place can kind of be ho hum, same same kind of place. But I mean, I've heard musicians vocally say they're nervous before the show. Because, I mean, it's, you know, it's, ten, it's what, 9,600 people kind of just bearing down on you. And you walk out. Um, we would literally, we would sent, set the band back, you know, probably 12 feet from the rail. Because no one wants to be right there in their face. And you want to be in, in relation to, the, to where the speakers hang so you're not getting any feedback. But um, it, it, it can be pretty, it can be pretty, um, you know, emotional and, and, and scary at the same time, but it's just such an awesome experience. I mean, as a crew member, you look out into the crowd and you see 9,600 people just going bananas, dancing, smiling, just loving life. They're there for their favorite band, whether it's whoever it is. I mean, they do the, uh, symphony there with some, some, I know Warren Haynes did it. I'm pretty sure there's some other stuff going on this summer that with the symphony. That's the show I normally dose for. You know, I'm, I'm the kid in the back that's just absolutely spinning out of control during the symphony. Ten, ten, ten strip to the dome? At, at least. Probably just a big puddle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a special place. And, and everyone looks forward to Red Rocks. And going back to the tunnel, there's so many names written on that wall you know bonnie Raitt, um the uh i saw neil young's name i mean it's just the list there's so many names every musician you've ever thought of or ever seen or ever wanted to see has their name on that on that in that stairwell and a lot of people i mean now it's more common knowledge that it's there um i think just from living in colorado for so long more people know about it that live there but if you never been to Red Rocks, or you don't know much about the music industry. You would have no clue it's there. Yeah, well, I, I love that uh, Carl and Joe Cahill have their uh, little tribute in there as well. For sure, for sure. I just saw a picture of Carl. That was weird. But um, the best part of it for me was, you know, obviously working for a jam band. 
I before the show started, I would always I was in charge of bringing the set list out to the front of house engineers, to the audio and, and lighting guys. In a venue, I'd have to walk through the crowd, and people would and I'd always have them upside down, but people would mess with me, whatever. But that one was always easy. And just if you needed to, sometimes radios go down. Sometimes the engineer might have his radio off or not on, you know, because he's working on the show and you need to talk to him about something. It's just such a such a convenient way to get back and forth. And as Rob said, to bring beers out to the crowd. Yeah, because I'm that guy. Um, so, so hey, let's trans, uh, transition a little bit to the Grateful Dead here. Um, I mean, Maddie, I think you and I have seen at least probably 30 Grateful Dead shows together. It's, it's something that a lot of people don't know about you, that you're actually a much bigger fan of the band after Garcia passed, and, you know, you really just wanted to see further shows and, you know, the rest of that. And you didn't really earn your wings in the lot until way later. And I, I think that it was probably really tough for you, having seen as many Garcia shows as you did before, like, finally, finally kind of, you know, getting the accolades you want as a Grateful Dead fan, like, with, like, the next generation kids that never saw Jerry. So, you know, you know, it's uh, it, as a just to tell Larry and Jim, we were standing in front of the Fox Theater one night. This kid came up to bum a cigarette off of me and Maddie and neither one of us had one. And instead of saying, you know, thanks and moving on, he looks at both of us totally seriously. He's like, you guys aren't family. <laughs> and, uh, and just we start cracking up. And we're like, all right, who's this? Who's this like new school Grateful Dead kid that's like shaking down our bona fides? And we're like, OK, I guess we're not family. You know, that that's too bad. And just it's been an ongoing joke ever since of like, Matt, do you have your wings yet? No, man, I ain't get them yet. You know, no, one's, no one's giving me my Grateful Dead wings. But <laughs> We're not family. Uh, we are not family. So, so Matty, how many, did, how many shows with Garcia did you see? You had to be, you know, 150 or so in the... Yeah, I tried to count. I, w- I want to say I'm in like the 140s with, uh, with Garcia Band and the Grateful Dead together. Uh, I started in 87, only saw one show with Dylan and the Dead, and then after that, 89 is really when I started cooking and then obviously Brent died in that summer 90 and then 91 I saw almost shit I want to say I almost saw every show besides like Canada and maybe a few others but um then started you know seeing less and less by 95 but um as the scene got pretty out of hand but well you were a dirty dready back then yeah it was part of my life I'll, ne- I'll definitely never forget it it was an amazing experience um i think it's just so different a, b- a big part of this show that um especially last week with uh, sandy troy you know the the four of us sitting here talking we're a link between garcia sandy troy his generation the people who are at woodstock we're a link to the young people who have never seen the Grateful Dead, never saw Garcia. So we can really, you know, pull this whole scene together. We're a very strong link between the generations. Well, that's awesome because I think, you know, when I was a when Rob and I were young, you know, 17-year-old kids, I felt that, you know, there was lots of older people that kind of guided us, helped us what to what to do what not to do and we were shitheads <laughs> we, were, we were we were total knuckleheads right we were out there like causing more trouble than anyone and we thought it was hilarious we knew it was kind of fleeting we were, we were being raised right by our elders but at the same time we were the next generation of just wise-ass kids from new york that thought we were hilarious which we were um <laughs> but just you know causing massive amounts of trouble out in the lot and every sort of you know scam we could pull off whether it was you know making our own tickets or whether it was you know figuring out how to um to to um, take a Pepsi machine drive every soda in the thing by using a fake dollar bill. You know, we had every scam out there that allowed us to get on tour, you know, relatively easily. And we'd go on for hours on, on all the ways we did it, which is fun when you read Steve Silverman's book because he like basically talks about our whole crew in that, in the skeleton key. And when it came out, we're like, yeah, we finally got the recognition. 
But we, we were, I mean, we were a bunch of punk kids that were having a really good time. Well, I think a, an awesome story is, um, I want to say, Oakland Coliseum, Grateful Dead ticketing had a uh, desk or booth set up outside the show. And one of our friends went up and they had put on the mail orders, QT. We were making so many fake tickets at the time. And my friend asked them, what's that mean? And he looked up and said, quit trying. <laughs> which is hilarious yeah i think it's dennis mcnally that used to run that table and dennis dennis totally knew what we were up to because we were you know it gotten back to him yep i mean how many how many well they would go and collect all the tickets um you know after the show obviously and find out the fakes um rob knows this story a fish show in new haven connecticut i want to say maybe 1990 or so in that vicinity and so we had made not mail orders, but just regular um, Ticketmaster tickets and used a copier, um, but stupidly used one that was bought by a credit card of one of our friend's mother, who showed up at the house the next day where Ticketmaster <laughs> higher-ups asking why they found 100-plus fake tickets in the drop after the show. You know, nothing happened from it, but it was a pretty funny story. So what we did, Larry and Jim, just kind of, you know, sell ourselves out now that the statute of limitations has long since run, <laughs> is we got we got cockier and cockier. We started counterfeiting initially floor tickets, and then we'd say, okay, you know, let's let's counterfeit, like, a better section. So we'd change the, uh, the seat number, and we'd change the row, until eventually we started going, well, let's just counterfeit front row. We're not going to go up there, but at least we can get anywhere in the venue, and anyone that shines the light down to check where we are, we can walk anywhere. But once in a while, we'd give tickets to people that didn't really know how to play the rules that we created, and six or seven of them would end up going into the front row, and all of a sudden, the ticket checker would come over and shine the light, and he's like, all seven of you guys have the same ticket number, and just bounce all of them out. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, the rule was, like, use it for access, but don't use it for anything else. Usually, just use it to get in the show, and, and just don't be a knucklehead once you've done it, and just accept the fact you're getting a free show. But, um, but you know, that was, we had it down to a science. We had it down where there's, you know, 15 of us that were working a, um, uh, basically, like, an assembly line. And putting you know putting tickets together the night before shows, uh, we'd make forty or fifty of them to make sure that fifteen of us got in, knowing a bunch of us we get stopped at the uh, at the, the turnstiles, but everyone else would get in. So, you know, at, at some point we'll we'll give a dissertation on how to <laughs> basically why Ticketmaster had to change their policy and start using tickets that had the burn marks on it. I mean, all of that was driven by you know creative guys like us. Yeah, I mean everything scan uh, scannable, whether it is a paper ticket, you know, you can print one out from your printer. And it'll still scan at the gate. So, you know, that, now that's the new trick is that people take already scanned tickets. And I think that's why they've moved to the phone is, you know, I'll get a call from someone outside. Man, I bought a ticket in the lot and it doesn't work at the gate. And I was like, I don't know what you want me to do about it, but go buy another ticket, really. Because, um, you know, the, people are, are assholes and they'll take those tickets and hand a bunch of their stubs out because they don't get ripped. I mean, when we were going to Grateful Dead and Fish back in the in the 80s and 90s, they would rip your ticket. And I always used to get mad. I'd say, rip it, you know, cleanly so I could yep. have this for later. But um, some of them would just rip it right, you know, diagonally or whatever. Right in the middle of the logo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But now, you know, every ticket, you know, you see these people with their plastic around their necks and they have the ticket perfectly embedded in the plastic. And you know, it's pretty cool as a souvenir, I guess. Absolutely. Hey, Maddie, in your work, did you ever have an opportunity to get to work with or know any of the guys from the uh, Dead's crew? Yeah. Funny thing. Um, I worked um, directly for 
Phil and friends a few times further. And then um, the last Mexico gig we did in 2017 with String Cheese, we, it was called um, Muerte de Queso or something, Queso de Muerte, Dead End Cheese. But it wasn't Dead End Company. It was when it was Bob Weir. It was Bob Weir on front vocals and guitar. It was um, a guy from um, um, Joe Russo on guitar, Dave Schools from Panic on bass, Kreutzmann on drums, Jeff Cimenti on keys, um, and I think was that the whole band? No Mickey, no John Mayer, um, oh, and, and well, Schools was on bass, so it was a little different, it was really cool, it was a great time, um, unfortunately, one of the nights, this is a kind of a crazy story where it was the night Butch Trucks um, passed away. Um, obviously, Bob Weir was really close to him and took the news pretty badly. Um, we, String Cheese, we were flip-flopping, opening and closing for each other. I think it was four nights. Um, we were opening that night. So we got done. We got cleared off the stage. Um, the uh, their kind of... Their old stage manager, Chris Chiruki, was who's just the biggest clown, really awesome. He since passed away. Um, you know, would always give me shit for everything. He would just give me shit for working for string cheese because he would just rag on us all the time. But anyway, he was like, Get your shit off the stage, we gotta get on there. Anyway, you know, we'd have these joking fights, we'd get off the stage, they get ready, and the time starts ticking by, and everyone's kind of looking around like, what the hell? No Bob Weir to be found. Um, time keeps going by. Now I'm saying, I'm thinking this is like an hour. I wouldn't even go out because I was like, oh, I can go watch the show and have fun as a fan. Um, I, I went out there and everyone's just jumping me, asking me what's going on, what's going on. I have no idea. So I'm like, man, this is crazy. I go back there and unfortunately, um, Bob does show up and he had had a couple too many and he was not ready to play. So luckily, Jackie Green at the time was playing the festival that was, you know, one of these all-inclusive things that they do. And uh, it was at the place where... Um, playing in the sand is. Yeah, exactly. Same spot. And um, so luckily, Jackie Green was there. It's cl Cloud Nine's venue. Yeah, it wasn't Cloud Nine. It was uh, Chewy and... Um, uh, yeah, consider it yeah, CID Entertainment. CID, that's who Berkowitz. did it. Yeah, Berkowitz. Um, so anyway... Jackie Green was playing like the pool earlier in the day and he happened to be there. They threw him up on stage for the, what they thought was going to be the first set, maybe a few songs. He ended up playing the whole show because Weir did show up to the venue but just was incapacitated. But as a true rock star, you know, I don't know if that show really made it in any of the archives or anything because it was, there wasn't many, there was probably maybe 1,500, 2,000 people there at the most. Um, this was before. I think Dead & Co. was a band, but they had they didn't, something Mayor couldn't do it or something. Anyway, um, the next night as True Rockstar, Weir came back and I, and just was awesome. You know, second, I think it was the second song they played Terrapin. And he just, you know, pretended like nothing even ever happened and, you know, just kicked ass. It was, it was really cool to see. And, and also, uh, as far as like dead crew members, like, you know, a Steve Parrish. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've met the real one too but um you know there's the two that i was closest to were um were Shiruki and aj 
I forget his last name. He's got an Italian last name. He's uh, Weir's guitar tech. Um, he's still there. And I know Shiruki worked for the Grateful Dead from like the 90s on. And, um, you know, I think he became a sound engineer, kind of part of the audio crew towards the end of the Grateful Dead's career. And then you've worked with Tobin, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, Tobin was BGP and Grateful Dead, I think, for a long time as well. Yeah. One. I mean, yeah. I'm just. As a uh, you know, as a guy who's now worked backstage and seen you know talk about the load in and the load out, does it give you a new appreciation for the Dead Crew in '74 when they were trucking around the country with the Wall of Sound? Absolutely. When I see pictures of that, it makes me cringe because I, I can't believe they did that every night. Man, that's just in, in, intense, um, especially for places like Red Rocks where you you know your 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 semi trucks come into the bottom lot. Then they have to be cross-loaded into a stake bed truck, driven up the hill, unloaded there, then pushed up that massive incline to the stage, then loaded in. So, I mean, there's a lot of work before the gear even makes it to stage. And one year, one of the stake bed trucks lost its transmission on the way up. So then they had to run down there, take all the gear out of the back of that truck, put it in another truck to get it up to the stage. And then, you know, after the show, same thing. You, you, you're, you're dependent on, it's two trucks going back and forth. Stagehands are loading, unloading or loading the truck which way you're going. And it just takes extra time. I mean, you know, after, you know, after working 25 uh, string cheese shows with, with string cheese or so, you know, it, it, can, it gets, it's tiring, man. You know, you're there till, say the show ends at 11 o'clock. You're there till two, three in the morning. By the time you actually like take a breather, and you're like, "Oh, okay, we're almost there. Let's get the hell out of here." Who, by the way, have one of the kindest, nicest, easiest going group of people that work on that tour. I mean, like, if, if you want to talk about some of the nicest guys in rock and roll, the String Cheese um, crew. You know, it takes a lot to get those guys riled up about anything. I've seen a lot of sort of angry crews. String Cheese crew just works really cohesively together. And if they're exhausted and, and beat, it's because like the work has been exceptionally difficult, especially because those guys do, so the, the Cheese as a band do so many creative things, and they bring in so many other, like, you know, acrobats and dancers for big events. They spare no expense to make sure they're putting on a really cool show for, you know, for their major events. But, uh, but you know, hat, hats off to the entire String Cheese crew. Yeah, they're all, they're awesome, and all, you know, all my brothers, they will be forever, and, um, and, and, and all the bands, you know, people get bad names for themselves because, oh, they might be dicks or salty but it's like the longer you work for these bands and you know i i can vouch man it gets annoying and then they just be they just kind of inherit they become a dick not on purpose because they have to be because if they show any niceness people just take advantage so they're just like well i'm better serviced if i just be a dick so then no one will talk to me they'll be like oh there's that guy i'm not going near him well very good um yeah, we have a little bit of Grateful Dead news here in Colorado. Uh, we're getting three Phil and Friend shows in September. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's going to play Vale again, where Bob just played, and then Dylan, Ski Town, and then basically in my backyard, maybe five miles from my house at uh, Planet Bluegrass. Well, we'll be uh, checking out uh, Dead & Co. at Wrigley Field right around that time, so there's always a little competition. A lot of shows coming, a lot of shows. So, Larry, I know you want to talk about, just uh, real quick today, July 7th, 1969, from Piedmont Park in Georgia, which is a, a pretty damn fun show. So, you want to jump us into that one real fast and just talk about kind of what's happening today in Grateful Dead history? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I happened to focus back in on the show. We were talking about Big Steve. I was listening to the Big Steve Hour not too long ago, and he was talking about uh, uh, somebody called and asked about Colonel Bruce Hampton. And he started talking about the colonel and what a great performer he was and how the colonel and Pigpen became such good friends. And that took him to the show at Piedmont Park, which I guess the colonel had some role in promoting or participating in one way or another. And the dead were there, and Pigpen obviously was there performing, and Pigpen and apparently the colonel became good buddies that night. And Big Steve was just as effusive as always about uh, what a great connection it was and how wonderful it was. But he stopped to say that it's a really good show and you should listen to it. It's not a particularly long show uh, by dead standards, although I guess for 69 it's not too bad. Um, but it's just basically one set, and uh, and it's great. You know, with, with any time you see a set that opens with a morning dew, uh, we caught one at uh, 85 uh, Greek Theater the first night to open the second set, but that's great. But, you know, Mama Tried, then High Time, Casey Jones, Dark Star, St. Stephen the 11, and Turn On Your Love Light. Uh, personally, I'd be fine with that and just go home. Um, but it, it's a great, great uh, show. And, um, Dan, I believe we uh, have a little bit of music for that show that we can listen to. Um, I have uh, sent Dan a clip from the uh, Love Light towards uh, the, the, the closing Love Light. And the, the love light is great for a couple of reasons. One, because it's just a great love light, and Pigpen is really on his game, and Bobby really joins in. And the clip we're going to hear is towards the end when Pigpen's kind of in his turn on your love light chant over and over, and Bobby's filling in, and you can hear the early forms of when Bobby would take over the song later on and really belt it out at that point. Um, but it's interesting, on all of the uh, websites and articles that I read about the show, one of the things that they talked about was that the Allman Brothers were there, and that supposedly... Dwayne and Greg Allman sat in with the band on this performance of Love Light. Can't find a straight answer one way or the other. The same websites will say, have guys who wrote in and say they absolutely were not there, and then notes up above that say Allman Brothers sat in with the band on uh, Love Light. So, you know, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. Um, but uh, go ahead and play that for a minute, Dan, because this is really, really good for Love Light. on like that for five minutes and it just builds and builds and builds it's great i i just love it that love light's a monster it's, it's one of the one of the great ones and it's such a great lineup i think tom constantin was in the band at the time also so yep. it's you know having Dwayne in there and tc in there um is that it's if you haven't listened to that entire show it's a, a rocker it really is a rocker and and the whole idea of the festival was great they had uh, delaney and bonnie there they had chicago spirit some other bands and um uh, but, you know, the dead went down there. They were in the middle of their tour of 69. They had an off night, two off nights between Chicago and Toronto. So, Maddie, think about that. An unplanned stop. You're in Chicago. You're supposed to go to Toronto. And you say, what the hell? Let's pop down to Georgia for one night and, uh, and do a quick show like that. You guys ever get put in that type of situation? We actually did. We were, luckily, we were in town. It was in Telluride. Um, 
but you still have to move the monstrosity of the stage. Uh, Monsters of Men, I think. One of their guys got sick. So we were, they just out of the blue said, you know, you guys got to play the Opera House tonight. So we had to move everything from the main stage over there. And, you know, it, it, it's just a major pain, especially when you, if you're not, you know, you can't get a semi down Main Street off the side street and, and Main Street Telluride. You got to take a little box truck, move everything um, one by one kind of thing. Um, and the same thing where we've done uh, the Wakarusa Festival, which is now changed where we would do the late night tent, say Saturday night, and then we would play Sunday on the main stage. So we basically no sleep play that show Saturday night, load it all out, load it back in at six o'clock in the morning to be ready for like a four or five o'clock show. I mean, it's just exhausting. Exhausting. Yeah. So an extra 600 miles one way or the other, no big deal, huh? You, yeah. That, that one, do. that one, I don't, I don't know, man. That That's a rough one. I don't know how they pulled that one off. Yep. They did, but it, it got great reviews and apparently the Hampton Grease band played and they, they all had a great time. And, uh, uh, I never got to see Colonel Bruce Hampton. I, I I never caught one of his shows, to my great regret. Um, but I, I, I can I only we imagine. Should do, we should do a whole show about him, Larry, because like you know, for those people out there that don't know enough about Colonel Bruce, he, like he's truly one of the magical people in the uh, in the jam band community. And there isn't a band that I know that I've worked with that you know doesn't hold him in just the highest regard for just you know kind of what a crazy nutty guy he was, and just um, how much influence he had, not just musically, but just um, as a person on almost everyone, especially everyone that did Horde Tour back in the day. Anyone that was kind of on those original Horde Tours being, you know, Fish and Widespread and um, and uh, Dave Matthews Band, you know, all those guys will tell you that, like, their experience of getting to know Colonel Bruce was just unbelievably unique. Traveler, all those guys. They inter- that's how I got turned on to Colonel Bruce and Jimmy Herring was through Aquarium Rescue Unit coming around the Fox, Horde Tour, all that stuff. I mean, they were, you know, not no names, but their names weren't as widespread as they are now. And I mean, the coolest thing about Colonel Bruce, Colonel Bruce, rest in peace, but the guy died on stage right. doing what he loved. With, with everyone thinking it was a farce, with everyone thinking right. this was part of the gig, you know, like, so it's, it's the greatest, it's the greatest rock and roll ending of all time. And it's so appropriate Absolutely. for who it was. Like it could have been anyone else in the story wouldn't be nearly as poetically like, you know, perfect, but because it was Bruce doing that and that's who he is. Like I can't think of another person that could have pulled off that shit as like we're like it's legendary absolutely legendary being surrounded by everyone you love at the venue you love at the fox theater in atlanta around like you know your biggest fans your biggest friends and and like dying on stage where no one believes it's actually happening it's insane they were, they were playing love light weren't they they were yeah well, there you go and and it was okay. minutes before people you know even realized and they said wait he isn't joking here this is this is real so it's a absurd story, but that just goes to the territory with, you know, like uh, there's so many Colonel Bruce stories like that, that, um, that this is just the natural conclusion to them. Yeah. And they had a great interview with O'Teal on this show and, and he talked about his experience with Colonel Bruce. And what was funny was I liked the fact that O'Teal said, you know, so here's Colonel Bruce. He's a few years older than me. And people talk about Colonel Bruce being a good athlete. We can save this all for the Colonel Bruce show, but supposedly O'Teal tells us how, Colonel Bruce played a mean tennis game and a mean golf game and regularly took people to the cleaners because they misjudged him based on looking at him instead of, uh, you know, knowing what he could do. Another game for Milos! <laughs> so that'll be, a, that'll be a good topic for us. I, I like that idea, Rob. Let's find a good show, a, a good date, and we'll, we'll do a Colonel Bruce show and, and talk about his influence on the jam band scene. 
That would be wonderful. Very good. Jim, what else you got for us? Any more shows coming up? Well, like I said, I got my Phil and Friends tickets. Kind of happy about that. Um, thinking about going to New Orleans Jazz Fest. Uh, got Mexico in January. So, uh, yeah, lots of good shows coming up. And, God, it's still June, technically, and uh, next week will be July, and I've already been to Red Rocks four you times. Go. You can break your own personal record. And, Maddie, I'll look forward to seeing you. I've already got my Andrews tickets for uh, Chicago in October and Evanston at Space, which is cool. one of my I favorite. Talking about, I was just talking about that. I've never been to that venue. Oh, it's, it's an amazing little venue. It's five minutes from my house. And quite frankly, I've seen Andrews in a bunch of places, uh, but Space is so small. I know this is an acoustic tour, but we saw him in there one night with his power trio, and, you know, he just blew the doors down. It was unbelievable. He's just... He's become one of my favorites yeah, was, over the last few years. I was reading that's only 250 people venue. Yep. Behind a pizza really parlor. In, really intimate show. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But I will be there, so I will look for you to give you a big hello. But Definitely. I will not be asking you for tickets. That's your chance. Show up at, <laughs> show up at Larry's Law Firm and just start like making a ruckus on that day. And just be like, yeah, I'm here, man. I'm here. You, you act I'm like here. that would be a problem for me. I'd invite you right in. We'd have a great time. You know, I know you're sober uh, now, but you always have to be ready. You never know who's going to swing by. So, uh, never trust a prankster. Yeah, that's true. Well, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for having me. No, this has been great, Maddie. The stories are wonderful, and uh, you know, all the information you can share with our listeners is great. And uh, you know, it's always good to have somebody who's uh, been right there and seen it all, and you know, can kind of explain some of the mysteries that uh, you know the rest of us always just kind of wonder about. So, thank you so much for being on our show, Jim. Any parting words? No, over and out here from uh, Longmont, Colorado. And uh, it's going to be a great summer with lots of shows. And, yeah, I'm going to fill in, too. I forgot to mention uh, Eileen Jewell is coming, one of a real bluesy gal singer, has a lot of songs on the radio. And, uh, of course, we've got three shows for Fish on Labor Day weekend. So uh, won't be any cobweb on my shoe. Very good. Rob? Yeah, I mean, as you guys know, I normally end these things with some sort of wise-ass comment of, like, what substances to take and what not to take. Um, but in this case, uh, I want to put it out there for all your friends out there that, you know, sobriety is a choice. Uh, support those friends, you know, and give them, give them the, uh, the love they need as they make that decision in their life um, because it's really important for a lot of people to, uh, to make that decision. So I've known Maddie for a long, long time, and I can tell you that I'm more proud of him as a friend right now than I've ever been watching him go through a transition that, you know, has led to a lifestyle change. That I think is you know a great one for him. So if you guys have friends out there, um, certainly give those guys you know as much as you can to uh, to continue forward on the path that's right for them. I think that's a great message, Rob. Thank you for sharing. I do have a couple of friends who have gone down that path themselves, and what we find is that they're still the most fun guys to hang out with during the show. So uh, you know it works out well for everyone. But thanks again to Maddie Veach for taking time to talk with us. Thank you as always to our producer Dan Humiston, and thank you everyone for listening. Have a great week, and please enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi. 
My name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.